This is Motley Fool Answers. I'm Allison Southwick, and I'm joined by Robert Brokamp. Hello, everyone. I've got some sad news. Oh, what is sad? I could tell you that Diana just went out for a pack of cigarettes, but the truth is, kiddos, that she is no longer with the Motley Fool, which means she's no longer going to be on the show. Of course, we wish her all the best on her next adventure, which I hope has something to do with exposing the underground fighting rings at the villages. <laughs> Someone's got to do it. But seriously. It needs to impose some loofah controls down something. there. Yeah. Uh, but seriously, Day Day, we love you and we wish you the best. Absolutely. All right. Well, moving forward. In this week's episode of Motley Fool Answers, we're going to tackle your real estate questions. And Robert reports back on the latest research from the Retirement Consortium Conference. Dun, dun, dun. It's like Burning Man for retirement scholars, <laughs> but with more drugs. Just not the fun kind. All that and more on this week's episode of Motley Fool Answers. Robert sat through the Retirement Consortium Conference, so you don't have to. It's so sweet of you. It's an annual event in D.C. that Robert never misses, probably because the after party is off the chain. Anything co-sponsored by the Social Security Administration, you know is going to be good. Yeah, so what is this event? And uh, I think you brought back a few things for us to be smarter about? I don't know. <laughs> yes. Well, it's it's uh, the consortium is the Center for Retire- Retirement Research at Boston College, the Michigan Retirement Research Center, University of Michigan, and the National Bureau of Economic Research. So there you go. Big names. And big names every year, National Press Club. And it's actually, it really is fascinating because it's all academic research. So the people who present the research and then there's a discussant, someone who talks about it and you get to chat with some interesting people. So I actually do find it rather fascinating. Maybe not everyone does, but anyway, so here are three things that I am bringing to you. Number one. Number one. Will your money last longer than you do? And this is a big question for a lot of people, especially who are retired. Am I going to run out of money? So, um, three guys, James Perturba, Stephen Venti, and David Wise, looked at this. What they did was they looked at where people were around 2012 or when they died and looked at how much money they had and then looked back and said, do they have less than what they started with or more back to the early 90s? Here's the bottom line people who die with a significant amount of money actually started off retirement with a significant amount of money. Most importantly, the people who died with a negative net worth because they owed money or a little net worth, chances are that's what they started out with. Most people do not go into retirement with a lot of money and then run out of money. So that you should that's, feel that's pretty good, good about that. Yeah. Yes. Of the people who did, uh, the reason was probably health care and health expenses. Often yeah. it's really high at the end of life. So as we've said before on this show, many times, stay healthy to stay wealthy. It bears repeating. Apparently, that's right. That's okay. right. And we'll 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 touch on this again. So for number two, <laughs> shortly in very fact. shortly, in fact, yes. Number two is why do people retire earlier than planned? So if you ever run your retirement numbers, right, you use these calculators, and you have to say, I want to retire at age sixty-seven. It tells you, okay, then you better save this much and all that. It turns out that around 40% of the people at age 58 end up retiring sooner than they planned, which is can be difficult because you you weren't be able you weren't able to save as much as you wanted. You had to tap your portfolio sooner. You may have had to take social security sooner, which means you had a smaller benefit. So this study, which was done by the Center for Retirement Research at Boston College, asked, well, why are people retiring earlier than planned? 
Top three reasons of the ones they looked at gets back to this healthcare. So number one, like they had some sort of health issue, they couldn't work as long as they wanted. Number two, they got laid off. And what often happens is once you're laid off in your late 50s, early 60s, you can find a job, but you're not going to make as much, and it's not going to have the same level of responsibility. So those people say, you know what, I'm just going to retire. And number three was some sort of family health-related issue. So having to take care of a spouse, having to take care of older relatives, that's another reason. So significant changes of wealth actually is not a big factor. Either you um, had a 50% increase of money because you had like an inheritance or you lost a lot of money. That actually doesn't have that much of an effect on whether people retire sooner than expected. So usually if you're retiring early, it's because something bad is right. happening. And the takeaway here is, as a financial planner for me, is you always have to have a plan B because noth- very few things go exactly as planned. So here, a plan B is just looking at, okay, so what happens if I have to retire sooner? What will I do with that? Maybe I should save a little bit more even though I want to retire at 67, just in case I can't work that long. All right, now it's time for point number three, which, let me guess, has something to do with health. It is! Number three, is your job killing you? And this was research done by Lauren Schmitz at the University of Michigan. There is plenty of evidence showing that the type of job you do affects your health. And not surprisingly, people in blue-collar professions have um, more health issues and their health declines quicker. But is it just because of that job, or is there something else at play here? So what Dr. Schmitz did, she looked at five things of a job, five characteristics. The physical demands, environmental hazards, so you're exposed to a lot of noise or contaminants, frequency and impact of decisions. In other words, the decisions you make in your job, do they mean anything to your company? Number four, does it have supportive management? And number five... Do you have some certain level of autonomy, influence, and control over your job? Are you doing things that you find rewarding? Are you allowed to express your creativity? All that stuff. The number one factor in terms of which characteristics correlate to your health, it's actually number five. Your, the amount of influence and control you have really? over your job. So, in other words find work that makes you happy and makes you feel like it provides something in terms of your self-esteem, achievement, and things like that. That is, according to this study, the number one factor in determining how much your job affects your health. In fact, people who rank highly on this measure, Mm -hmm. it's the same health effects as if you exercise three times a week. So it's significant. One reason might be that people who are in these types of jobs have lower stress levels. Yeah. And we know that stress affects brain chemistry, it affects how you sleep, your digestion, all kinds of things. So, bottom line, get a job you like, or exercise three times a week, and reduce your stress. And bottom line, overall, just take care of yourself. Just take care of yourself. Be healthy. Right. Because we want you to live a long, long, happy life. That's right. And not run out of money. And not run out of money. All right, cool. Um, so, are there any like celebrities at the Retirement <laughs> Consortium Conference? Like, did you run into anyone? You're like, oh man, I loved your work on Social Security premiums. They were uh, amazing. Yes. Yeah, yeah, so and I'm not going to even bother to name people. There are certainly people whose research I know and read. A little starstruck. Just a, a little, little bit. I make sure I try to sit at their table and talk to them at lunchtime and things like that. And uh, yeah, no, I like it. And, and like many things, uh, when you meet the person in person, sometimes it can be great. And sometimes you may be like, oh, eh. <laughs> <laughs> You're better on paper. 
I'm sure that's what people say about me. <laughs> oh, bro, you're better in person. Little boxes on the hillside. Bro, I'm not a real estate expert. You are not a real estate expert. I've owned houses. Does that count? I've owned a house, too. Um, but we do get a lot of real estate questions, and we don't want to completely ignore your real estate questions. So I outsourced the advice for this week. <laughs> <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, Donald Trump. <laughs> He's here with some advice on having a luxurious house. And um, No, uh, I actually enlisted the help of some fools around the office. Um, they are by no means real estate experts either. However, they were smart people with experience. Uh, this is also a chance for me to get some exercise and run around the office, which, as bro just told me, is very important. Very important. Very important. So, for the first question, it comes to us from Russell. And he says... I would like to know how to get started in real estate investing. Uh, basically, he wants to diversify his portfolio, build an alternative income stream with the goal of early retirement, but he's not sure how to get started. He's in his late 20s and debt-free except a mortgage. So good for you, Russell. And to get an answer for your question, I went to Nathan Willis. He's an editor here at The Motley Fool, and he is well known for growing his real estate empire of rentals in the DC area. So I tracked him down at his desk for his best advice on getting started investing in real estate. One of the things I think you have to understand about real estate is that it's very, very localized, and it's very hard to draw general conclusions that you can say to anyone in the United States, well, this is good and this is bad. Um, it's very neighborhood dependent. You know, it depends on whether you live in a city or a small town. Um, it's very important to, I think, know the neighborhood before you buy anything there. You not only need to know where you think it is now, but where it's going, because once you buy, you have no control over the neighborhood, and that has a huge impact, um, you know, both on the income you can get from it and your ultimate property value. So I think it's a nice uh, diversifier from stocks. Um, it's generally very uncoordinated. 2008 was not a good example of that, but uh, but in general, it, it tends to be very localized and regional, um, and so it doesn't have much correlation with that. And, it, and if you invest well, you can both make a lot of income and have a lot of capital appreciation. Um, you have to be very careful about when you buy and how you buy and how much you pay because you can also, the other thing you can do in real estate really quickly is find yourself underwater if you don't like make smart purchases. So, so it's very, it's it, unlike a stock, you know, hopefully a stock is not your an entire portfolio. And even if it goes to near zero, it's not going to crush you. Whereas, you know, you start out in real estate and you lose like, you know, you can lose like hundred, $200,000 on a property really easily. And that's your whole portfolio. So you have to be very, very careful about making the purchase. A great place to start is to read the unofficial guide to real estate investing. Um, it's a book and it covers at least in brief, almost every topic you could think of regarding that. So if you read that, you can get an idea of what you're interested in and also what areas you think you already grasp and what areas you need to do more research in before you start. Um, so it's, it's a great place to start. All right, our next question comes from Bryce. 
And he writes that he's been thinking about buying a house in one to two years. His wife and him have paid off all their debt, saved up six months' worth of expenses in an emergency fund. They max out their IRAs, contribute to their retirement programs at work, and they've invested some extra money. Bryce is also a veteran, so he says, I have access to the VA home loan, which allows me to buy a house with no money down and no PMI. This would allow us to use savings for home improvements, investments, or vacations. The other option is we could be saving for a 20% down payment and lower our monthly mortgage payments. We can't decide which route is better option financially. What's your advice? So, Bryce, to help you make this decision, I went downstairs to the first floor to talk to Ross Anderson. He's a financial planner with Motley Fool Wealth Management, which is a sister company to The Motley Fool. The first thing I would look at is whether or not you want that cash and the the savings that you've accumulated to continue to be part of your net worth. Because you ask the question in a couple different ways of what should I do with this money? Should I put it down towards the house? Should I improve the house that we buy? Or maybe put it towards something like a vacation fund? And I'd want to recognize that those aren't necessarily equal. Vacations are great, but, but two of those keep cash on your balance sheet and continue to build equity, uh, whereas the vacation fund, not necessarily, but it might still be a great time. So the VA loan is a great thing. It's an awesome benefit uh, for, for our servicemen and women. Uh, it's the, the only risk to, to doing 100% of your mortgage is that the price fluctuations in the house are now really impactful, particularly in the short term. So if you didn't think you were going to own the home for a long period of time, you could find yourself underwater very, very quickly. Uh, once you buy a home, the cost of getting out is actually a little bit steeper than what people think. You've got closing costs that you might have to pay and realtor commissions all on the back end. And, and so in those first few years of a mortgage, you're paying down very, very little in your principal. You could get stuck underwater in the house and having to bring money to the table just to get out. So I want to make sure that that doesn't happen. That being said, at historically low interest rates, it is attractive to be able to borrow for the whole amount and maybe improve the property or, uh, or, or use those, those funds towards something fun. I just want to make sure that you don't end up in a situation where, where the mortgage payment is unmanageable. The, the golden rule of thumb, really, that we always look at is 28% of your pre-tax income. So making sure that that mortgage payment isn't more than 28% of your pre-tax monthly income uh, will make sure that you stay in a comfortable range and don't overextend yourself. Our next question comes to us from Shoots, which I think we can all agree is an awesome name. That is an awesome name. <laughs> so Shoots just returned from a vacation in uh, with his family, and they've visited it four times in the last five years, and they're already talking about going back again next year. Any chance you guys could discuss the pros and cons of buying a second home in a vacation spot? So Shoots, for this question, I knew I had to run back upstairs to the fourth floor to find Jeff Fisher. He's a beloved advisor here at The Fool, and he works on Motley Fool Pro and Motley Fool Options. He also owns a vacation home in Costa Rica. So he seemed like the obvious person for this question. Jeff and I sat down for a chat in the studio's control room. Here's the advice I would give from experience. One, sort of the younger you are, uh, the less free time you may have because you're working more. And so when you do get a break, to have to go to the same place again and again may start to wear on you. It started to wear on us. The thing is, once you own a place, you feel like that's where you need to go. You may want to go somewhere else, somewhere else may be calling to you for vacation, but you feel like, oh, we have to go because we have to work on the house or pay bills or, or whatever it is. So that ties into my second bit of advice is once you own the property, it feels less and less like a getaway 
and more and more like an obligation, sadly. At least at this point in your life where you're working and your time is scarce. You get down there and you realize, this is falling apart. I need to fix this. I need to furnish this and decorate this. Because once you own it, it's it's yours to maintain, you know? But if you're just going to a rental, you just go there and you exhale and you just enjoy. So it really changes the tone of your visit. At least it did for us. It became more about obligation, sadly, than about just relaxing. I don't want to be a downer. I know many families who have a second home and love it, and that's their family's second base and their getaway, and it's magical, and then they pass it on to their children, and that, you know, it goes on and on. So I wouldn't discourage that, but think very carefully about having a place that's easy to reach, fairly easy to maintain, and that indeed you will want to go back to again and again, and yet isn't so expensive that you can't go other places to when you want to change of scenery. Lastly, bro, you've been sitting there so patiently. Here's your question. It comes from Lori, who isn't asking you for any pity because it turns out she's rolling over in a big pile of cash right now, just wondering what to do with it because of the sale of her house. So to her question, Lori writes, my husband and I have recently switched jobs and moved across the country. We sold our house and moved into an apartment in our new city for now. We did very well with the house sale and ended up with more than $80,000 in profit. I've never seen this kind of money, and it's just sitting in my savings account right now, and I'm not sure what to do with it. We paid off all our credit card and student loan debt. We're expecting to use most of it for a down payment on a house in next year. But is there anywhere to put it in the meantime to earn some interest, or should we just invest it all and keep renting for a while? We are starting to enjoy apartment living without the extra expenses and responsibilities of homeownership. Well, I'm very fond of Lori. Let me say why. First of all, she paid <laughs> off all her debt. dollars <laughs> despite, she's got. Despite the fact that her name is not Schutz, she first has paid off all her debt. That would be the first thing I would look at as well, especially the credit card debt. Um, the thing about where you put money, you always start with, when am I going to need it? So if you need money in the next year, two or three, it's certainly not the stock market. Uh, she's thinking about doing the down payment on the house in a year. So uh, you can, believe it or not, find one-year CDs that pay about 1%. Not huge, um, but 1% on 80000 $800. you got to pay taxes on that, but that's still something. So I would look at like a one-year CD. Um, the one thing that I also like is she, she is realizing that actually not having a house is pretty good. And as someone who has owned a few houses in my day, Boy, is it a pain! I think the I think the benefits of renting are way undersold, and the benefits of buying a house are completely overemphasized. So I would say to anyone who is in this position, you know what? If you like renting, stay renting. Then you can invest this eighty thousand dollars for the long term. Right. As people who actually own homes, we kind of are not in love with the idea of. No. I I'm in love with the idea of owning my home, but. Boy, your home comes to own you eventually. Yeah. Well, people underappreciate the costs of the insurance, the upkeep, the maintenance, especially if you have like you know one of those big time things like your air conditioning goes out or your roof sometimes to your yeah. roof. It's it's usually not factored into uh, the the calculus of owning a home, but it's significant. Yeah, and, we're, and Morgan Housel, I think um, I just watched an interview that he did, and he's going to be on the show next week. Um, he talks about how for a twenty year period. Like houses were actually a really lucrative investment and they actually provided a pretty decent return. But it was this isolated 20 year period that ended in a big old bubble. Right. And so there's still this preconceived idea that uh, buying a home is actually a really good investment when, in fact, usually it doesn't return much at all. Right. To, to 
if you look at the long, long term, it, it appreciates about at the rate of inflation. Yeah. And it's certainly nice to have all that home equity in retirement. It is a resource you can tap if you need to. But if renting makes more sense economically and you like renting, go ahead and rent. And then any of that extra money you would have put toward a house, invest it. All right. Well, that's going to do it for today. Hopefully, you guys found these uh, real estate answers to your real estate questions helpful. And you can keep sending us more real estate questions. It's just that I'm going to have to keep parsing them out to other people because, as you can tell, we're not really big on real estate. <laughs> All right. If you want to drop us a line, our email is answers at fool.com. The show is mysteriously edited by Rick Engdahl. And even though she's no longer sitting across from me, the theme music was still written and composed by Diana Yoakum. For Robert Brokamp, I'm Allison Southwick. Fool on. Fool on.